Hey, I'm Craig Finn. This is my podcast. It's called That's How I Remember It. Each episode, I have a creative guest on the show. I talk to them about how their memory affects their work, the stories they tell others, as well as the stories they tell themselves. Today, I'm joined by Jay Sweet. Jay has done a lot of things, but he's best known for booking the Newport Folk and Newport Jazz Festivals. These are two music festivals that have incredibly important histories in American music. Jay took the reins some years ago and has managed to honor the past as well as bring Newport into the future in a very exciting way. I have been to a lot of music festivals in my time. I'll tell you that Newport is very, very special. I haven't been to jazz, but I've been to folk two years in a row now. The first time I went as a fan, I ended up playing a little. And then this year, the Hold Steady played on Saturday. But I intended both Friday and Sunday as well as a fan. Because if you love music, there really isn't a better vibe out there. And their definition of folk is ever-expanding. The first year I was there, Paul Simon and Joni Mitchell played surprise sets. This past year, I saw Slaughter Beach Dog, Los Lobos, Jason Isbell, Lana Del Rey, Amy Mann, so much more cool stuff. The Hold Steady also played one of my favorite recent shows there to a crowd that wasn't maybe 100% familiar with us at the beginning, um, but it seemed to really get on board through our set. It felt super cool. Jay and I talked about that. We also talked about how Jay and his co-workers at Newport are in the business of making memories. The super collaborative spirit of the festival assures that fans will see something special each Newport weekend. I was excited to ask Jay about how this all works and sort of his side of the story, which of course starts with him being a massive, massive music fan. Here's Jay Sweet on That's How I Remember It. Jay Sweet, thanks for joining me on That's How I Remember It. Um, I start every podcast off with the same question, and that question is this. Do you consider yourself to have a good memory? I have an incredible memory if I can associate it with music, but if it's anything to do with numerology or, or, or anything, um, I have a horrible memory. Um, Music. It has to be music. I build all the lore. My entire reality of lore and narrative is based on music. So is that just like if you see a show or something, you can recall it really well? I, I can recall some of – I went to my first Dead show on uh, October 21st, 1983 at the Worcester Centrum. It was Brent Midland's 33rd birthday, and I can name the first six songs they played and songs that they never played uh, after that. Uh, but I – sometimes have a problem remembering my mom's birthday. <laughs> so, I, I mean, that's true. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not proud of that. If my mom hears this, I'll be embarrassed. But No, I mean, I, I, you know, I started this podcast thinking that people who are creative would mostly say they have great memories. Um, and I found that that hasn't exactly been the case. It's been qualified a lot. And But one thing that does come up is sort of this arcana of music stuff or, you know, people really grab onto you. And why do you, why do you think that is? Do you think it's like an emotional thing that like allows you to latch on? I think, I think, you know, how they sell, they say smell is the most associative with memory, right? Like mm -hmm. I think when I smell a gardenia, I think of my grandmother or when I, you know, smell the strawberry rhubarb pie, I think of my great aunt's place in Wiscasset, Maine. Like, I mean, that seriously, that distinctly, mm -hmm. but I think when it comes to creating our own identity, like me, um, I just thought there wasn't anything cooler 
You know, to me, the circus was live music. That was the the adventure town. That was on the road. Uh, mm. You know, when I when I look at someone like Neil Cassidy, who you know not only served as a inspiration for the Merry Pranksters and and the whole San Francisco scene, but he was also the central character of On the Road. You know, you think of those things like in my head. You always, I always felt like I wanted to be one of those cats, mm-hmm. like like this kind of on the roady type of figure that uh, for some reason, that's where I thought I wanted to define myself. And I, it always came to, you know, my favorite parts of my favorite books are usually the scenes where the person is sitting there being enthralled and in, in music. It's like the, uh, I, I, we talked about this. You and I have talked it. like I was a poetry major in college and the, the having to memorize a, a poem, uh, even a poem I wrote, would be would be not easy, uh, but Lord, if you want me to start, you know, reciting lyrics, Bob Dylan lyrics, get, no problem. Uh, the music in my head, because uh, I can hear it in my head. So I don't know if that answers the question, but I do think it's one of those things. Yeah, I do think. Well, I, I also think there's melody, you know, that helps us remember these things. And I, and I remember my sister, she'd always make a song. She'd make, if she had to memorize something, she'd sort of write a song. And it, it seemed very helpful. And I think that, you know, that's why I think Dylan is easy to remember in some way that, that then, you know. I don't know, Yates or Auden or something like That's, that. I mean, like, hath thou slain the Jabberwock? Come to my <laughs> arms, my beamish boy. Like, I can hit some Lewis Carroll now and again, mostly because of my supreme amount of acid intake over the years. <laughs> but I do think, I mean, that my, my earlier years, for all you listeners, I had the time to spend with any type of memorization. And we're talking about memorization. That's different from memory. But I'm saying, you know, I think people that journal a lot, can have a, a little easier recall because I think once you have a memory and you go through your fingers to put it into a manifestation onto a piece of paper, it kind of cements the memory because you've done an action to to do that. I wish I was better. I used to be much better at it. And when I go back and I read some of those journals, which a lot of people, you know, we also can't find the time to do that. Right. I'm fascinated by what a better writer I was, <laughs> you know, practice makes perfect. But I look at, you know, at the same token, if if I have two amazing young boys, uh, you know, my sons, I don't think I'd let them read those journals right. at the moment. <laughs> um, what you're saying, though, is 100%. If I need to, like, um, learn lyrics, either my own or something, you know, for, a, you know, some tribute or some covers thing we're doing, I'll just write them down and then I'll take throw that page out and write them down again. And then I, I saw you do that at Newport. Yeah. I literally yeah. have, I actually, no offense for, sorry to break it. I actually have a memento. Uh, I keep the weirdest stuff from Newport. I, I worked at the Newport Folk Festival and yeah. Jazz Festival for people. That, no, no. But I, uh, I have one when you were trying to do something for the Cluster Folk set mm-hmm. and you were trying to uh, figure out what you wanted to do and what you're going to remember. I have a thing where you wrote it and you wrote it and then you put it away and then you got another piece of paper and you wrote it again. And and uh, I actually have one of the copies. You were you were going to throw it away, and I stuffed it in my drawer of ephemera. It works. It works. It's the only thing I've found that works. It's uh, it's the, and I think it's that. It's 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 going from one part of your brain to your fingers, and then it sort of sells that. Um, backing up, big big picture. Do you have any concept of like your actual first memory? Uh, uh I have one. Someone asked me. This is really weird that you asked me this. Um, this is the one that. I claim to be the memory. And it's one of those ones, my, my parents are like, there's no way you could remember that. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, 
And I, I'm almost, there's no way that my version of it could be made up by somebody else telling it to me. I'll be more specific and concise, but I think conceptually it's been difficult because I've wrestled with it. Um, recently, somebody asked me if I knew this older couple who's a generation older than I am who live nearby. You know, I just randomly ran into somebody in another place in the world and they said, oh, you're from that neck of the woods. Do you know the this couple? Mm-hmm. And their, fa- their names were Troop and Connie Berg. And I, I have not crossed paths with them in probably 25, 30 years, but I said... I responded to this gentleman who asked me the question. I said, it's fascinating you asked me that because my earliest memory of all time was my mom had her pilot's license and Troop, who was the husband in this other couple, had his pilot's license. And there was a two couples, the Bergs and the Sweets were going to Sugarbush, Vermont. And my mom and the male were going by plane because he was going to let her practice taking the wheel on the, this Piper Cub. And my father and the other, you know, Connie were going to go by car. I was in the back of a Piper Cub airplane. <laughs> and I said that my ears were hurting because I obviously pressurization. By the way, this was back when it was like, throw a beanbag in the back of a freaking <laughs> two-seater Piper Cub, no seatbelt, this isn't the sta- back of the station wagon. This is the back of an actual airplane that's made, right. made out of aluminum. Yeah. And I yeah. was this, I mean, I, it was my earliest memory. So I don't know how young I was, but I mean, I had to have been really young. And there was like a beanbag, like kind of thrown in the back and luggage. And I was on the top of it and they gave me a soda. And I'll know why that comes in a second. But I, I had problems with my ears. So they gave me headphones, much like we're wearing, like, the, you know, with the little calm system. They gave me kind of a pair. And I kid you not, I can remember, going back to music, it was Water of Love by the Dire Straits. And I can remember the song. I don't remember, and I just remember looking out of this Piper Cub window with these earphones on, which I'm sure it was probably totally illegal, but this was in the 72 or 3, 1973. Like, this is, I'm old. So, like, looking out the window at the foliage of of Vermont, it was in the fall, of the foliage, listening to this somewhat brand new Dire Straits album, like, that's the only way I can, I don't know what all that means, but it, 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 I just remember it. So, and by the way, I knew it was a soda can, and which is why there's no way my mom could remember is he thought it would be fun every once in a while to do the dips where we become weightless. Yeah. And I remember throwing my soda can up in the air and watching it float for a second before catching it. I don't know, man. Like, sorry, sorry. You asked me. This is like the earliest memory I have. This is amazing. And, you know, by the way, there have been people on this podcast that have said they have crib memories. So yours is not, it's not at all impossible. I, I, you know, I think it's obvious, obviously, uh, that level of detail. Did you like the song? Were you thrilled by the song or was it just the memory of the song? That's fascinating. I I came to the album after, much later. There is no way, it wasn't like I was listening to to the radio much and I I had already fallen under the spell of like non, like contemporary music or pop music uh, when I kind of got my own record collection going and whatnot. This is a lead up to say like, when I heard it once come on the radio, we talk about memories and imprinting and how it's easy for a kid to learn a language, you know, when they're, you know, sub 10 years old than it is, you know, every year after it's harder to learn a language. I knew every word to the song. Like 
and down to the waterline. That's also like I, I could sing almost every lyric to an album that I had never remembered ever playing. And I, I kind of plumbed the depths of being like, how the hell do I know the words to this song? And then it just kind of that whole memory, which you don't think of the memory, like this memory that we're talking about wasn't something that I had remembered it in any kind of light other than a sense of wonderment of it was probably my first time ever looking down on the earth, like from up above, you know, which is an untethering if you're a child it's the dream of what happens when you go, when you hold onto your balloon and you start going up in the air, you know, this, this idea of being untethered or what do birds see, you know? So I think there was an equation of being untethered from the earthly plane in the back of a Piper club. By the way, your mom is steering an airplane. I mean, the whole thing was kind of screwed up to be honest, by the way, she, and by the way, why I know this was such an early memory is my mom, like I'm five years older than my sister, and she, when she got pregnant with my sister, so it'd be nine months. So, you know, four and a half years old uh, is probably when we're talking or maybe even, yeah, three, four and a half years old because she stopped. She never flew again once she got pregnant with my sister. So I know that where that time period is. And what I'm trying to say is me hearing a song come on the radio and knowing every word to it, having never remembered ever hearing it before in my life allow me to go back and try to plumb, like, why do I know this song? And that's when I had the memory of the actual thing that happened. That was the first time I ever remembered the memory. I love this. And I'm not, you know, I think when we go through these profoundly different, I mean, that's a, that's an extreme situation. You're in the, you're in a small plane, your mom's flying it. It's I can't so- believe we're talking about, it. by the way, I haven't thought about this, by the way, the, the, <laughs> like the third time I ever thought about it was honestly like a couple of weeks ago when somebody said, do you live in this area? And the only people they knew and the only story I could tell <sighs> yeah. him was actually, yeah, do you have like 20 minutes? Because <laughs> I, you know, most people have been like, oh yeah, the Bergs, I know them. They're friends with my parents. <laughs> that wasn't. And by the way, it wasn't like they stayed super tight, like right. forever. I mean, anyway. What tangled webs Sorry. Leave, you know? Uh, what was the first music that you, was like yours? Did you have like like you know if if there's well, music in your house that you you were like this is this is sort of me and not my family's or me and not my parents? I can use well one. I thought my dad was a, a deity when it came to musical taste. Um, he let me play, which is a precursor to your question because he let me. I always, I've said this in one other interview, my dad who has passed, uh, I don't know, six, seven years ago, uh, he he was the opposite of any other father who had such an extensive record collection. He would let me, those earliest memories too, he would let me pull hundreds of records when I was, you know, maybe just out of diapers and throw them uh, on the ground and let me rearrange them by like, Ooh, this Roberta Flack killing me softly. She has a big afro. That's cool. And I put that one, and then I'd see this, you know, R. Crumb, whatever that guy, that that, that art, 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 yeah. art, artist Crumb, uh, yeah. doing the Cheap Thrills by Janis Joplin. I'd be like, Ooh, there's there's a bottle with XXX on it. Like this was a dangerous album, you know. Yeah. Like I, he just used to play. Let me play with album covers, and I didn't know what the music sounded like. And so take that and put it over there, but. The three earliest memories I have were the first thing I stole uh, ever was two things, a stick of ju- a, a, a packet of juicy fruit gum. Uh, but I had also in that stolen a cassette of Full House Live Jay Giles band because 
which was before the whole freeze frame and centerfold things, because they were a Boston band. I'd heard Love Stinks on a on like a secretly at night on a BCN, like this whole uh, crazy, you know, Peter Wolf stoned rap that goes before Love Stinks, Reputa La Buta. I can still remember that we talked about Murray. Um, and that was my first concert was backstage at Jay Giles at the Worcester Centrum by two weeks because the next concert was the Grateful Dead concert that I was 12 years old that I just talked about. But again, me landing the plane is I had gone to a camp in Maine uh, called Hawthorne and Hawthorne, it was Camp Hawthorne in Maine. And my mom and my dad had been separated and they were going through a rough time. So they shipped me off to this uh, camp and uh, I don't know out of guilt or whatever, but my mom sent me a $5 bill, which this was uh, 1983. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was 12. And getting this $5 bill in bumfuck Maine, if, if it wasn't made out of linen, it would have had more purpose of being able to light it for the campfire. Like it hadn't, there was nothing to buy. And I remember it falling out of this envelope, love you, honey, and, it, and this $5 bill. And this 17-year-old counselor in training saw it and said, hey, man, I'll give you three bootlegs for that $5. We're trying to buy a pony keg. <laughs> none of those sentences, none of those words, by the way, were, were it was hieroglyphics in verbal hieroglyphics. I, I had, I, all I heard was bootleg. And the only thing I associated with bootleg was uh, the Dukes of Hazard. Like they were bootleggers yeah, 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 with yeah, Uncle yeah, yeah. Jesse and so 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 I was like I thought I was going to get these little snip bottles of moonshine so I just gave him the five I mean it, hey the seventeen year old counselor who you think is God at twelve because he's seventeen I hand him the five dollars thinking I was going to get these snip bottles and I was so nervous I'll just pour them out and pretend I drank them and I got these three Grateful Dead bootlegs and I had a Sony Walkman the the mm-hmm. the yellow sports one. Yeah. Um, yeah. But my actually was so early, it had still had the orange headphones, those those styrofoam orange headphones. And I played those three Grateful Dead bootlegs. I mean, I was stuck in a camp for whatever, you know, and there wasn't a lot to do when it rained, but listen to the, they were allowed to listen to music. So I listened to it. And then on the cover of the, the live dead bootlegs, how to steal your face. And you talk about iconography and memory. Sure. How cool was that when you're 12? It's a skull with a lightning bolt. And... My father, skip ahead till I'm after camp, it's in the fall, and my father is on the couch reading his paper, and on the backside of the newspaper, because I can't see his face, the backside is this huge full-page ad for the Grateful Dead live at the Worcester Centrum in 1983, and they'd used this steal your face. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't even look at the words Grateful Dead, because they said live dead on these bootlegs, and I didn't know what they were, even though I listened to them. Because there was no internet, you know, I, I, yeah. I had no idea what these things were. But then I saw and I kind of went and grabbed my three tapes and I looked and I was like, Dad, I want to go to that. And I just pointed at what that was. Mm-hmm. And he was like, looked at the paper. He's like, you want to go see the Grateful Dead? And I was like, yes. And he's like, so confused. He's like, OK, sure. Like, <laughs> let's do this thing. And we went to the show. And my dad, I also remember this, him he thought it was funny and that 12-year-old mortification. For everybody out there who has a child who brought them to the Taylor Swift concert, I know the feeling because I, I, I remember my dad showing up. I somehow, I didn't realize that when we got there, he took off his overcoat. He'd been coming from work and he had his suit on. Yeah. And he took off this like tan Brooks Brothers over raincoat and he threw it in the car and he was about to walk in wearing 
like a dark blazer and a pink Oxford into, and by the way, I picked up pretty quickly in driving to the dead show with like the shakedown street outdoor, like Mm -hmm. the scene, like this shit wasn't going to fly what my dad was wearing. Like I was lucky. I was probably wearing a t-shirt and like normal, like khakis or something, but I was like, dad. And so my dad bought a shirt, went inside, bought the concert shirt. And he was like, I'll be right back. And I thought he was going to go into the bathroom, of course, put the shirt on and like in my head, throw away the Brooks Brothers button down shirt. No, no, no. Just to fuck with me. He came out with a t-shirt over the pink, the the pink collar was sticking up and just to see my face. And I think I almost, it it wasn't funny. I almost started to get emotionally like crying. He's like, chill out, chill out. And he took it and tied it around his waist. That's the memory I have. And then I remember I was so small that I got to stand on the seat. So I was just enough over everyone's head. And right there, that was my music and nothing else. uh, It wasn't anywhere else. It was either that you were, you know, the original before the whole uh, touch of gray kind of thing. It was, you were either part of the tribe or you weren't Mm -hmm. there. There was no, it was a binary. There was a bifurcation of people who knew about the grateful dead and people who don't. And you were either on the bus or you weren't. And I liked the idea that I, I had my own thing, truly my own thing. Um, yeah, that's a long story, but that's how I'm so passionate about that part. Hey, I'm Craig Finn. Here on That's How I Remember It, we often talk about music. So I wanted to mention DistroKid and their new app for iPhone and Android. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. Over a million artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. With this app, you can sign up and pay for a new DistroKid account or sign into an existing one. You can upload new releases. You can get notified when you've earned royalties, edit your account details, check your streaming stats, add lyrics and song credits, edit release metadata, and so much more. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. It's great. I, I my, my my introduction with the Grateful Dead was seriously that I I checked out a book from the library about the Grateful Dead, and I remember being like so blown away by all the iconography. You know the 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 yeah. Bruce for Allah the um oh uh, Dead set Skull and the, Roses yeah Sk- Skull, Skull and Roses dead, you know every Just... every bit of it. And I still hadn't heard the music. Maybe I'd heard <laughs> Truckin' on classic rock radio, yeah, but maybe. Maybe, but like I remember, like being like, I gotta hear this. But meanwhile, and you know, um, it, it it was it was so impressive. The the only other time I ever felt that way, just to give a flip side, the only other felt when I felt because your question was when did you feel it was mine, and I understood what you meant about not your parents or your yeah. like you identified with it as a discovery of your own. Now, I, but I think it's equally as important because you're 12, I'm 12, I went through iconography. I, the music chose me, not to che- sound cheesy. It, it had nothing to do with the music. It was a tribe of a culture of a thing that I found to be fascinating. The only time it's, the only flip to that is when I'm old enough and I've gotten my taste and it's squarely in the whole, you know, everything from deep Motown because of my dad and like, or, you know, the Wilson Pickets and and, mm-hmm. and, and the Bucka Whites and the... all. So deep blues, but, you know, it was squarely kind of in the Crosby, Sills, and Nash, Almond Brothers, Grateful Dead, blah, 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 blah. At school, friend handed me a cassette, and it was R.E.M.'s Reckoning. Mm-hmm. And um, 
I'm just going to jump ahead to the story where I exactly a year ago today, when you and I are literally one year ago, I didn't mean to plan this on this day. I finally met. Well, no, I met I, I met Michael Stipe for the second time. And man, did I fucking blow it. I mean, I, I was I went to being 15. I don't fanboy. You know, you and I have known each no. other a long time. Like, I, I am very lucky and fortunate to have met so many of my heroes. And some of those heroes I now consider acquaintances, at least not friends, maybe, but at least that they'd see me and know my name. I, I mean, I really screwed it when I met <laughs> Stipe. I mean, I, I was the asshole. I, I lost all cool. I think I freaked him out. I think he was like, all right, pal, let's take, you know, it's bad when like Natalie Merchant is being like, they're there, Jay, let's go over here. Like she was literally trying to like, it was that bad. So Michael, if you ever listen to this, I, I apologize. I am just such a fan because it, he had to understand as somebody who has made a living in music and I don't play an instrument, there's very few instances of pure inspiration that I was 14 I went and told my mom it, it was okay for her to let me get on a Greyhound bus from Boston to New York City. And she gave me 40 bucks, 20 bucks I put in my shoe because she was sure I was going to get mugged, which I did at Port Authority when I got off the bus. I, I, a guy said, hey, man, do you, do you, do you want some, uh, some, some reefer? And I said, uh, sure. I, and he's like, I said, how much is it? And he's like, how much you got? And I, the only, th- I had the 120 bill because and he gave it to me. He's like, I'm going to leave it in a paper bag around the corner. And I was like, yeah. I, you know, and so anyway, but my <laughs> point is, so I had 20 bucks. I had a ticket. I just think there's no way I would let my kids even do this even now. And they're older. And, and I went to Radio City Music Hall and I didn't understand. Uh, I thought everything was a GA show because I'd been to that Grateful Dead show and I didn't understand what seats and a ticket was. And so I didn't like the fact that my seats were very far away. So I walked out to the front and the security card kept trying to get me and I jumped down into the orchestra pit at Radio yeah. City Music Hall. And, I, and, and it was like, as soon as I did it, it was like lemmings, like all these other kids like True. went over and uh, someone has played me the tape where it's either Peter or Michael says like, Oh, that's cool. A bunch of kids jumped into the, you know, in that Athens draw, which I can't do. And, and, and then when they said it, then more and more. And then, of course, the, at, the, at the end of the show, the only way out was to go through the, the backstage because we couldn't climb out of the orchestra because there's enough of a drop. So they opened this little door where the orchestra goes out and it a- ended up being right into the room. And there was Peter Buck, like cool. right, right there with the Rickenbacker. And I just remember being like, I worship you. And he's like, don't worship me. I'm a schmuck. Just a musician, kid. Don't ever work. Don't ever. He said, don't ever worship the musician. Worship the music. Yeah. Full like billboard line from one of your heroes. And of course, the story I just told you, poor fucking Michael Stipe a year ago tonight had to hear <laughs> that exact same fucking story. Did this come up on like a Facebook memory or something? Like, is that why you know it's a year ago tonight? No, because it was a, it was, it was, it was somebody, it was a uh, Christy Turlington, uh, who's an incredible person who does this incredible fundraiser called Every Mother Counts. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it, it was on this night exactly a year ago. And I had helped her get uh, a bunch of the music, which was Natalie Merchant and Valerie June. I had helped her for her fundraiser of Every Mother Counts. And as a surprise to me, poor Christy Turlington, as a surprise, as a, hey, thanks for going above and beyond and giving us your sweat equity. I have a surprise for you. I know how much you love R.E.M. And she's best friends with Michael. Right. 
And it was like seeing a puppy. Like I like freaked the fuck out. And and then I think she was like, oh shit, I've just unleashed the super fan. What happened to that cool Jay Sweet guy? He's gone. I think I embarrassed everybody. Yeah, I'm it, just saying it. It's funny too, because you probably met Buck and Mills and-, and Oh, they're fine. I've, exactly. I've, I've hung with those guys. Me me too. And they, they seem less, I don't know. They seem more approachable, easy. You know, like I, my butter, my, I wouldn't get butterflies. I'm a huge Argon yeah, fan too, but- yeah, I, I met Mike Mills and he we were talking and he wrote my like Rockville. I always say that, you know, my world is Grateful Dead's Reckoning and R.E.M.'s Reckoning. And if you put those <laughs> out there, I kind of live in there. I mean, my own personal, not what I do professionally, but like by myself in my room when I'm in control of the, the playlist. And, you know, I got to hang with Mike Mills once in Austin at the Driscoll talking about Rockville, which is my favorite mm-hmm. R.E.M. song, which is one of the few that, you know, I am Superman, Rockville. He, there's very few songs that Mills was like, you know, the guy behind the song. And, sure. and Peter Buck's always been super approachable. And I reminded him of that story and he laughed. He's like, wow, I was so prophetic and profound when I was drunk. <laughs> and, uh, but it, Stipe was always this kind of, you know. It's, that's the power of the band. But the thing you say about Reckoning and Reckoning, I mean, that's a great transition because honestly, I mean, you may say that's your personal, but that goes a long way to explain what you've helped Newport become. I think that that's... I appreciate um, that. um, And backing up for a second, um, what was your first knowledge of Newport folk? Was it the, like most people, Dylan Electric there? No, no. I I am going to say it because we're friends. It was, I snuck in. I went to high school. I went to a high school in Newport. It was a sleepaway. It was a boarding. It was a boarding. Was school. it St. George's? It was. I, w- I went to St. George's. Yeah. And so, yeah. I, and there are a bunch of well-known people that went there. And mm-hmm. um, I was there. And one summer, I, it's uh, a longer story. My parents asked me not to come home for a summer. I had, I had kind of, <laughs> as some of the stories I just told you, my poor parents. I get um, it. <laughs> they, they were like, hey, you know what? It might be best if you spend this summer just not home. So, and by the way, I wasn't going to summer school there. They were just like, find your own way. Mm-hmm. Um, I was 17. And so I had my license in a car. So I learned to, you know, they were like, go get a job, learn how to be a real person. And uh, I remember I was working at the uh, Clark Cookhouse and somebody so- told me, hey, there's a music festival uh, happening. And we should sneak in. And I was like, do you know how? And they're like, yep. So by the way, when I did get the job, the very first thing I did was they were having some security issues. And I said, well, I I can tell you a couple of the places where people are easily getting in. They're like, I'm not going to tell you how I know this, but um, that was my first. and, And that was one way. And then the next summer, I liked it so much, I went back and, uh, there was an artist named, what was his name? Martin Sexton? That's a good yeah, yeah Martin yeah. Sexton, what I think his name was. And I, uh, I pretended I was, like, when he got out of his van, I grabbed his things, pretending I was a, a, a volunteer for the festival. And then the festival people thought I was, a volu- I was working with Martin Sexton. Yeah, <laughs> nice. Uh, what, <laughs> what was the first one you worked on? Like what? What? Uh, what yeah. Like- I went. I went in. Strangely, strangely, I went in two thousand and six or seven. It was the year that the Pixies went acoustic, and mm-hmm. the beginnings of Monsters of Folk yeah. were there. 
I was there for Paste Magazine. I don't know if you know this, but I was the editor-at-large of Paste Magazine for like a decade. I knew that. Yeah. Um, and so that was before I had anything to do. Like, I mean, it wasn't even a thought that I would be involved with it. In 2008, 2007, I got hired by a company to look at it with a consultant's eye. And then 2008, I became part of, a, 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 I was one of the people that was asked to help book it. 2009 was the 50th. I was the co-producer. And then 2010 is when the whole, it, it just, I was finally like, I think I found my purpose in life, which is a very rare thing. When you came in in those early years, was there a moment or like an artist that you brought in that you said like, okay, this works. Like I've, I've. I've tell you, I can tell you the first two artists I booked. I mean, when I say booked, months before another artist got booked. I mean, the two were the the local boys done good, Dear Tick, who mm-hmm. have been on your show, uh, and Trey Anastasio. And why I did Trey, which was interesting, is Patrick Jordan. I will forever give him. I, I don't want to speak out of turn. I, Trey had spent some time uh, drying out and hadn't done a live show sober. I think I, I'm pretty sure that Newport was his first sober show ever, uh, maybe. Um, or at least enough. And Patrick and Trey, I, I, I'm very friendly with the, the, the fish lyricist, Tom Marshall. Yeah. Uh, in a previous life, I was a, a teacher and Tom was so kind to me cause I didn't know anybody in, in Princeton. And it turned out the one, one of the two or three friends I made in my time there was the lyricist of fish. And, um, they were very kind to me. So I'd gotten to know Trey a little bit and, Again, this was when I was a teacher. Like, music business wasn't even, like, a thing. I mean, in all honesty, it, it's such a trip that I, I just thought, like, he was so instrumental in helping me, without knowing it, do something outside, like, take the big risk to go into the music and to just try to be part of music, that I thought it would only be cool if my first offer... And, and it was so cool that he said yes. And his, his, his parents came, well, his, his, his dad and his stepmom, who I'd gotten to know really well. And they all came and they all supported it. And the fact that Patrick Jordan, who, who manages uh, with, with, you know, as part of Trey's management team, was like, yeah, it's kind of badass. Like, if Trey's going to do this, I mean, what better way to kind of do that thing where you have to go out with no light show and in the middle of the day with no no lights, no smoke machine, nothing, and just sit on a stool with an acoustic guitar in front of 10,000 people and bare your soul. Like, if you, need to, if you need to prove that you can do it without, and there's that, you, you have to put something, you go to the oldest festival in America where your Johnny Cash's and all the other people that have done the same thing and have had to go out there. There's no place to hide at Newport. You know, there's no yeah. place to hide. No, no. and, and it's, it's striking to see an artist like, like this summer when we were there, Alana Del Rey played. And, you know, if you saw her almost anywhere else, you'd see a big, you know, a more production on a different level. And it was cool. It was really cool to watch that. It brought out something to me almost spookier in her music that I love. Oh, it was crazy. It was crazy. And I give her so much credit because you have to understand to to do away with all the, I'm not going to call look, it's beautiful. It's showmanship. It's a show. It's an extravaganza. It's, 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 uh, this is nothing degrading of, of a big spectacle because I think humans love spectacle. I also think humans love authenticity and seeing the warts and seeing the humanity of, of an artist that 
can walk between those two things. And I think it was really brave of her to do that. And I also think it's extremely brave that she understood Newport so well that she was like, look, I mean, this incredible talent headlined Glastonbury. Like, it's not as if she needed to do Newport. And when she did Newport, she was the penultimate slot. She -hmm. understood like, hey, look, Billy Strings has played this thing four times. He, you earn your way at Newport, which is unlike any other place, I think, where, you know, you can be one of the biggest artists in the world, but if Mavis Staples is playing, you're not going on after (laughs) Mavis. And I, and I, and I, and I, and, or John Prine, or you name it, right? Levon Helm, there's this, this, this pantheon of, you know, the, the Mount Rushmore's and, and very few artists, I think of Lana's stature, understand the historical context of what it means to play it and do within the traditions of that, even though there's no, they could, she could have said, I'll play, but I need this, this, and she didn't do those things. Right. right. So I want to give a shout out to that. It was so cool to watch. I mean, it's one of my favorite artists and it was to, you know, I could, I could see her, another way but it was so unique to see it that way last year and you know it, look the whole steady played there dinosaur junior played there the year before there's there's stuff that's not you know what we would call traditional folk music that um you've put forth um but they i think people do they it does carry some influence but i'm curious do you get pushback at all when you bring in um you know artists that are you know like a harder rocking thing or or more pop etc um or is it i mean is it a tiny minority or do you have to fight for it there's a there's a trap in that question craig (laughs) not it's not a purposeful (laughs) i know i'm just saying the laugh is is which year are you talking about and what i mean by that is when i was there everything was a fight it was pete seeger man like it was Bob Jones, the, 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 the guy who'd had the helm for 40 years, and Pete Seeger. Mm-hmm. Like me trying to tell Pete Seeger the definition of what folk music is, is sacrilegious. Mm-hmm. And I remember hanging out with Emmy Lou, and she and M. Ward gave the same answer when asked. They, they were asked, what do you think folk music is? And both of them said, as if, and they were not saying it together, different... It is whatever Pete Seeger says it is. And so then when you get me having the gig, it's I'm sitting there going, Deer Tick, hell yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm the one saying, you know, look, I, I was brash, I was stupid, I just thought I could do it. But what I learned was now my biggest critics, I don't want this to sound megalomaniac. That's what I'm dancing around. It's like I can put what I want. Nobody is telling me what I can and can't do at Newport at this point. I'll just do what I want. The biggest critiques that that I work for are are the fans because I think the word folk has been reclaimed by Newport. And what I mean by that is I don't think I've never – this is going to be sacrilegious and I can't believe I'm throwing out a big thing on, you know, my boy Craig's (laughs) show. It's like I never, 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 ever, ever believed in the term or the genre. Which is interesting when you give me the keys to it. And I'm like, I don't really believe that, that the genre of folk, you know, it's been a, attributed to Big Bill Brunzi as, you know, it's all folk music. I ain't never heard no horse sing. Right. Uh, attributed to whomever it wants to be. I kind of always fell back on that in interviews when people would hold me against the wall. Bob Boylan being one of them. I love you, Bob, but you were one of those people that was like, yeah. how dare you? Not how dare you, but he was trying to create, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. Kind of like, you know gotcha journalism. Yeah. And I yeah. was like, look, yeah. man, here's the thing. I always said, like, if Bob Marley was alive, I would be my number one person I would book. And that's, that's, 
is that folk music? I think Redemption Song is probably the best folk, one of the best folk songs written in the last hundred years. So we can go down this and blah, blah, blah. We can talk about genre. But to me, what we've reclaimed the word folk to mean is the actual people that trust me and my team to buy a ticket without a lineup every year. That's the folk. The Newport folk is now the audience because you know who I serve? You know the only people I'm terrified of when I book something? Mm-hmm. Are those people. Why? Not because, look, if I bought something and did one of those concert posters and Newport doesn't do posters, if I did that and everybody could see it and critique it, that wasn't even there, fine. But I don't. Everyone buys a ticket without knowing the lineup. So I hope to God on Monday after they've witnessed whatever they've witnessed over the three days and the Monday after, all I care about is whether or not they think me and the team did a good job with the lineup and they felt that it was worth coming because it sounds weird in this day and age with the oldest, you know, 65 years next year is Newport. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's 10 years older than the Woodstocks of the world. And I, and, I, and I sit there and I'm thinking, you know, I'm kind of the second or third guy to ever have this job, but I've reclaimed the word folk. And, I, and I, one more thing on it, and I'll stop because I obviously pretty passionate about it, is I once secretly asked George Ween, the genius and the founder of all things Newport, who I'm looking at his Lifetime Achievement Grammy is over my shoulder, who passed away and was still doing it in his mid-90s. He was still on the phone with me every day, kind of telling me what I do wrong, <laughs> and mostly wrong, uh, pretty much all wrong. You know, he secretly told me, uh, and he's gone, so I can say this. He was like, Jay, the only reason we called it the Newport Folk Festival is rock and roll was like three years old and we didn't know if it was a fad. We thought it could have been like disco. Right, it, wasn't, right. it wasn't this huge planned thing. It was just like, look, man, rock and roll was nascent. So like, you know, Bill Haley had only come out two years before they were planning it. So it was like rock around the clock, you know, and Big Mama Thornton Hound Dog. Like that was it. Like that, that was, uh, you know. Well, you know, okay. So one, one thought from a, you know, a newbie, I've only been twice, but so, you know, you, you sell it out without anyone knowing any, any artists, um, yeah. which is incredible. So that's a date, like that means it's working, but there's a community, there's a feeling of community when you're there. And so maybe the folks are everyone. Our artist and I mean, look, you've been there as a, you, I mean. the first year you came, you came as family, not even a performer. Yeah. So the thing is, it's like, well, you ended up performing because I knew that would happen. Yeah. But, <laughs> y- you know, you tell me, I mean, I, I know you're the interviewer, but like, I don't know, man, it's I, I'm so in it that I can't see the forest in the trees. It's 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 I'll tell you this. I am very fortunate to go to a lot of music festivals. It's it's one of the perks of the gig. And I'm not objective. And I like music festivals. I just don't think that Newport is a music. I, I think it's the first music festival, but I, I don't think it's somebody once said it's the perfect. It's the music festival for people who hate music festivals or not or who, who don't want to go to music festivals. Hate's too strong a word, but I don't know when the whole study was there. I'll tell you when the whole study was there, kind of a walking away. Everyone said, this is the I think this is the one I could go to. Like, this is the one I could buy a ticket and, and sit in the audience and not need, you know, of course, like whatever VIP treatment's nice, but like, you know, I could, I, I could just sit there and, and be happy. And I, I look around, I, you know, when I, when, uh, we did a book event early and we saw some of the early, uh, early, early in the day and you see families attending together, families coming in together, setting up, you know, I almost felt like some people had their spots they set up every year, you know? Um, and so you're in the business, you know, bringing this back to the idea of memory, you're kind of in this um, business of making memories sort of uh, for a lot of people. Well, do you know what our mission statement, we changed it this year. I mean, it had a mission statement for 
I mean, to change the mission statement on an institution, who, I don't know how I get to do, like somebody, the imposter syndrome is very, very high because uh, I keep going, like waiting for somebody to be like, why do we let this kid, I'm 53, so why do we let this guy do this is, uh, you know, the team, you know, I give way more credit to my team on this. It was like, look, it's time. It's, it's, it's time to switch it. And we now say that our jobs are to create moments of hope through the power of music and community, not the other way around. It's, mm-hmm. to prov- it's literally our job is to create moments of hope through the power of music and community. And I take the word hope there to your exact thing. And it's moments. Remember, it's not to create hope. It's to create moments. moments. Sub 30 second quick hits where life is good and moments. And can we all agree that when you say you're creating a moment of hope, what you're really doing is creating a memory. You're literally creating something because you're not going to remember the entire day. You're going to remember the harmonization of Jenny Lewis doing uh, the harmonies on acid trip, right? Yeah. Or, 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 you know, acid tongue, sorry. But you're, you're going to, or, or you're going to memorize, you know, you and Jay Maskus doing that thing for, for 15 seconds, not the whole song, but the feedback. I wanted to bring one up because I think you, you're the, right there. Last year when Los Lobos was playing and Nels Klein came up and they were doing Bertha and I felt like I levitated. I, I, I looked at you and I was like, that's, a, I literally am getting my hair. See, I'm literally, but the goose, I'm literally having goosebumps because yeah. it was, by the way, and the funny thing is, remember, if you remember that, I remember this. So you remember when you talk about memory? I cannot remember like whole years are evaporated in my head, but I can remember yeah. you and I standing on stage left and I kind of remember kind of looking at you and it wasn't verbal communication. We were kind of doing the <laughs> nonverbal communication because Nels was having a hard time finding, because he was playing like a Grateful Dead version of Bertha, not the Los Lobos mm-hmm. kind of version. And he was trying to yeah. find it. And I was like, oh my God, he's walking a tightrope. He, he actually sounds like he is out of key out because it wasn't even his guitar i think he was like mm-hmm. grabbing someone's guitar and 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 john mccauley of deer tick was actually out there too and trying to show the court like and nels was a little out of place and then all of a sudden it clicked and he was just nels klein doing an impossible germany kind of solo but on bertha and the whole thing and that moment is when he when it i love that it was a train wreck and then it was like soaring in the space of about five seconds and everybody was on stage left kind of looked around was like and i'm making a hand of my brain exploding for you guys listening yeah and i remember i i looked to my left and saw the audience just kind of pick up and it was you know it's it's a mid-song it wasn't on a big like test me test me why don't you arrest me it was in the (laughs) middle of a it was in the middle of a jam and when 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 the collective woo of an audience when the when the collective vibe non-communicative through music not even a lyric where everyone knows a moment just happened and you can feel the entire energy and the vocal din of the crowd get above the song. So it's equal to or as powerful as a amplified, and we have a lot of amplification up there, when the collective gets bigger, man, if there isn't anything better on earth at this day and age, somebody said to me the other day, they called me out and I said, I really believe that music is one of the last great collective things that people with disparate backgrounds can share. And someone said, no, you know, like I was at a football game the other day and I was like, yeah, I'm going to call you out on that only because there's a, there's an arena thing in that where it's, 
us versus you and we're going to paint our face and kill you. And, and, and there, that's tribalism. That's fine. But I meant mm-hmm. where nobody's sitting there being like, I like Nell's climb more than you do or you like, <laughs> that's not happening. You know, it's like, right, right. I can be definition of person A and you take the other end of the spectrum be definition of person B and we can both be there watching Bertha Grateful Dead, you know, played by a band celebrating their fucking 50th, like mm-hmm. that in itself. And then you put Nels Klein on there and he's doing the solo to it with a guitar that, you know, he doesn't really feel super familiar with. Everybody was on the same page that saw it. Every single person was yeah. freaking focused on it, was blown away. And I just don't know where that alchemy exists in today's world. I don't know. There was a, a, the other moment I had last year that was really interesting because I was, yeah, I'd stuck around for Sunday and we were watching Lana Del Rey. And then I thought, you know, I was like, should I beat the traffic? I don't know what to do. Never. It's getting late. Never. <laughs> I wandered over and I saw 19, there was a, on, on the, uh, the, uh, the stage behind. Yeah. They were doing I, I know. It was I, the, it was the year of, uh, 1973. 73. It was the yes. 50th anniversary of the year 1973. And it was this power of bringing this whole crew of people. We had lost another, as what happens, we had lost an artist. You were there on the mm-hmm. year before when we lost an artist. We'd yeah. lost an artist that day. Uh, I think we're not that we're coming up. We had like Orville Peck or somebody was supposed to play it. Couldn't play it. Yep. And instead of just leaving it blank, it was everybody that was there that wasn't playing the festival. It was all the musicians that weren't <laughs> playing the festival. were like, yeah. Hey, you've been eating a lot of oysters. You want to earn that shit? A perfect example is like Valerie June, right? Not playing the festival proper. And she's like, I'm going to learn midnight train to Georgia. Gladys Knight, which is one of the best. Woo woo. Um, yeah. But not only that, I'm going to bring out Floyd from the Muppets to do the woo-woos. <laughs> and I'm going to have, you know, Phil Cook, M. Ward, Robert Ellis, J.P. Harris, you know, Margot Price, mm-hmm. Bo Bedford, Aaron Ray. Th- that's going to be my backing band. And it's yeah. like, and when I say no rehearsal, I mean, like, what key are, yelling, what key yeah. are we going to do it in yeah, as yeah, it's yeah. happening? And I, I remember the audience, think of an audience that, wait, let's just also say, think of an audience <laughs> that shows up for an, a, 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 another stage, not knowing it, it, what it's going to be, not knowing who's going to play it at a festival. They bought a ticket, not knowing, knowing is anybody. And it was packed. I mean, like and, yeah. packed. And people were losing their mind because they never knew what, I don't even think the bands knew what the next song was going to be. It, it was wildly celebratory. And my, my favorite part about it is I didn't know what they're doing. I didn't, I had to be told weeks later, oh, those were songs from 1973. I said, oh, I know them all, but I didn't think of that. It that was, was not the thread. Heaven's that Door, was the thread. You know, Bad Boy, Bad Leroy Brown. Crocodile Rock. Train to Georgia. Crocodile Rock. Yeah. Just, just. Just brilliant. I'm going to ask one more question, and it's uh, it, it it goes to my ex- experience um, playing because the past few years and uh, oftentimes in the hold steady one we're playing, we're playing to rooms who know the hold steady very, very, very well, and it's it's you know it's 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 fun because it's a community, but you are on some level preaching to the converted. And um, at Newport last year, we played, and there was a moment. 
I, I became aware that, you know, some people out there were very familiar and some people were not at all. There was this moment when we kind of go in this, during the song first night, we go into this part, we say boys and girls in America and everyone kind of slowly stood up like a, like a church service. It may have been one of the greatest feelings I've had playing music. And it was because I felt like you earned it. We're getting people here. We're getting people here. Is that, is that for you a thrill? Like, like when, when you bring people in, you know, Jack White walked off the stage and he got emotional when he played Mm -hmm. and he got off the stage and it took a long time to get him to come. I'm just Mm -hmm. using him as one example, by the way, to your exact feeling. And he said, what is it? I said, no one bought a ticket to see you. I was like, when was the last time you played a thing where no one bought a ticket knowing the whole city was going to be there? So right. there was people who, and by the way, these are people who've seen some shit, man, Craig. They, they've, they've <laughs> yeah. come, if they've come for four or five years, man, they've, they've seen some shit. So right. if you think like, hello, Cleveland, where are we again? And you, you pull yeah. that, this audience, man, will just be like, I'm out. They have plenty of other yes. shit they can see, and they, they have a strong distaste for anybody who thinks they're bigger than the game. And the game, mm-hmm. in this case, is the word Newport. And as my audience would say, I won't even say is, the headliner of the Newport Folk Festival is the Newport Folk Festival. That's the mm-hmm. headliner. Mm-hmm. And I think, I, by the way, I'm not claiming that. I'm just saying that, again, I, I'm scared of my fan base in many ways because it's theirs more than it is mine. And, but if you do it and you know that you're trying to win it— I think a lot of people that have reached your level of success, it's, it's, you are usually, and I've been to a lot of your shows. I love the collective, everybody singing everyone and you can turn the microphone around and let everybody sing it. But to that Jack White story, he was like, it's the first time I haven't played seven nation army since the day I wrote it at a live, at a live concert. You know, where, and he said, I just felt like I might be able to get away with not doing it. And I don't know anybody who was like, oh, I'm so bummed Jack White didn't do Seven Nation Army at Newport. I didn't hear that anywhere. And I think that feeling that he had is what you're kind of saying, which is you get to a level and it's kind of fun to have to go earn it in a, in a place that has the historical, the, the connotations of Newport. It's like, you got to like bring it. And if you have an off one, like, man, I've, I, I'm, and I've seen that. I'm not going to name names. I've seen it probably less than, Half a dozen times I've seen people just either caught up in their own shit or just couldn't elevate or, mm-hmm. and they've asked, some have asked for a second chance, but most are just like, I'm never doing that thing ever again. <laughs> like too much. It's, yeah. it's too much. It's too much of a thing. And I don't know. I, don't, I would say the audience isn't jaded at all. It's just, it, it's, it's expectation. They'll go in with it. Look, they're going to go see a set where they don't know anybody's playing. They don't know the songs you're going to play. And they don't, and, and, and by the way, it's pretty rough. You know, like the Midnight Train to Georgia was pretty good, but the Crocodile Rock had some, you know, had some warts. But it, I think they enjoyed it more. One more, Big Thief played it the first time. They played it. Adrienne had, she started a song three times. The first time she was really nervous and then she felt awkward to stop it. It just wasn't the tempo. So that's cool. And people will get, pull up, you know, was, hey, it's all, you know. She does again and then had to, she got through a whole verse and then stopped it again and she got emotional. She was like, I think that sometimes being at Newport, I've heard from people can be kind of overwhelmed. They've built it up or whatever. I mean, Jess Wolf talks about that a lot, but so yeah. she's doing it and then she got emotional. And I'm gonna get emotional telling the story. The whole audience stood up and gave him a standing ovation when she stopped it a second time and started over. And when she got through it, 
It was deathly quiet. Everyone was standing. It was a pin drop. She got through the song and it was one of the loudest applause I've ever heard, ever. Because it was the humanity of like, this isn't to a dance track. No offense to an amazing artist like a Pink or a Britney Spears or, or something that has the trapezes and the, the you know people come riding out on horses and holograms. But like, I think there's this desperation for a connection of my audience knows these people are human, and when they're trying to do something at Newport, they're reaching. They're reaching beyond their comfort zone, and I think. I think the world needs so much more of that. It's vulnerability is really what it is. All right. Great talk. Huge thanks to Jay Sweet for taking the time to join us. I believe that they'll be announcing the festival acts before too long. seems like that time of year, so keep your eyes peeled. The Folk Festival this year is July 26 to 28, and jazz is August 2 to 4. I know that Newport Folk sells out before they even announce any artists, so you want to be on top of it if you want to attend. All the info is at newportfolk.org and newportjazz.org. Also, as an aside, 1973, what a year. It's another thing last year's festival taught me. So I watched that celebration of the year 1973. Knocking on Heaven's Door, Midnight Train to Georgia, Bad Bad Leroy Brown. What a year for good music. So I'm on tour. Come and see me and hang out. I'll be in the USA. I'll be in the UK. I'll be in Ireland when I play in Dublin. All dates and all info at craigfin.net. Again, a huge thanks to Jay Sweet for joining us and also to you for listening. We couldn't have even done it if it wasn't for you. We've got amazing guests still to come in upcoming weeks. Keep listening and subscribe if you can. I'm Craig Finn, and that's how I remember it. <laughs>